You will have noticed by now, if you couldn't tell from my far less dulcet tones, that I am Research Director Simon Cowan stepping into the very large shoes of Salvatore this week, coming to you live from the Bill Leak Room deep in the CIS budget bunker. And I have with me Senior Fellow Robert Carling to give you all of the upsides, the downsides and the insights that you need from this week's federal budget. Thanks for joining me, Robert. Thank you. Good morning, Simon. Awesome. Well, let's uh, just start by getting your overall impressions of the budget. It's a $214 billion budget deficit that is unprecedented. Uh, certainly in my lifetime, I think in anyone's lifetime here, it's 11% of GDP. The cumulative deficits across the forward estimates approach almost half a trillion dollars. It's a far cry from the four surpluses that we were promised at the last budget. Robert, what is your take on where our budget sits now? Well, they've, the government has obviously uh, splashed a great deal of cash in its uh, expenditure and taxation measures, both in this budget and what went before it uh, in the last six months or so. So it should not just be a matter of splashing a lot of cash for the short term, uh, with the objective being stimulus for the next 12 or 18 months. And I think uh, this is where the, the budget is disappointing, especially on the tax side. Uh, they could have done more. We keep, we often hear this, this saying, don't let a good crisis go to waste, meaning take the advantage of the atmosphere created by a crisis to do things that might otherwise not be politically possible. So I don't think that they have taken full advantage of the crisis in that sense. And as you say, um, <clears throat> budget repair is a something that's been put off for several years, basically, and uh, uh, debt is going to increase net debt to uh, Commonwealth net debt to over well over 40% of GDP and gross debt to well over 50% of GDP. And remember that back in 2007, net debt was negative and gross net debt was fairly negligible. So we've come a long, long way since 2007. And we're, you know, we're now more like uh, the other uh, industrial countries in terms of um, our public debt. And we've, we're yet to see what the states will come up with, which is in addition to that. So um, I think it's fair enough that uh, the the government would not be taking budget repair measures now, but I think uh, uh, they've said, well, well, we'll start to address that uh, when the unemployment rate is clearly below 6%. You know, that's possibly on their own uh, projections uh, a couple of years away, um, at least. Uh, so I think that's a long time to wait for uh, the issue of uh, budget repair beginning to be addressed. Awesome. Look, thanks for that summary, Robert. Let's dig down in a couple of these sort of key issues here. 
And I want to take our listeners, most of whom I'm sure can remember back a decade, even if our press can't, to what was happening around the global financial crisis, some of the work that you and Stephen Kirshner did. And, and if you haven't yet checked out the video that we did on the budget yesterday with Stephen Kirshner, Emma Dawson from Per Capita, and Danielle Wood from Grattan, please uh, make sure, viewers, that you, you take a quick look at that if you want more of my voice in particular. But if we go back to the global financial crisis, probably the last time that budgets weren't subject to the deficit spending restraints that they would be in normal times. Um, there was a lot of criticism of, of the Rudd stimulus, the way that it was structured, the way that a lot of the benefits have uh, were designed to flow after the uh, emergency was more or less complete. In particular, I think the, the government, the current government is criticising or was criticising that those measures for being too permanent. Um, is there a risk that, you know, just off the top, that this government's gone too far the other way, that the desire to avoid permanent changes to the budget has left them with what appears to be no vision at all? Well, yes, uh, you could say that. There's um, on the taxation side, for example, the company tax measures, principally the call it the uh, one hundred percent investment expensing or investment allowance, call it what you like, um, cuts out in twenty twenty two. So it's not. It's not a solution to the underlying problem, which is Australia's internationally uncompetitive company tax regime. And uh, on the personal income tax side, uh, we have these stage one, two and three personal income tax cuts announced in 2018 and 2019, particularly budgets. Could you just explain to uh, our listeners particularly what's yeah. covered in stage two and stage three? Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, stage three was the end point. So this was the ultimate objective. And it was, it is, I should say, is still. Um, Even if a, I'm just. <laughs> a, uh, a marginal rate structure of 19% uh, up to $45,000 and then 30% uh, up to $200,000 and then 45% and with the Medicare levy added on to all of that. So that was to be, that is the end point in 2024. But we got, we were to get there in stages and stage one was basically just a, a low income tax offset and a low and middle income tax offset with no changes in thresholds and marginal rates of tax. And, but then stage two, <clears throat> which was to have been uh, in, implemented in 1 July 2022, uh, re essentially replaced the low and middle income tax offset with an increase in the threshold for the 32.5% rate from $37,000 to $45,000 and the threshold for the 37% rate from $90,000 to $120,000. And that's okay, the stage so it that's was been threshold, brought forward threshold in this budget, correct? And that's what has been brought forward in this budget retrospectively to 1 July 2020. 
with the added twist that instead of replacing the low and middle income tax offset for this year, it's in addition to that. So they're retaining, so you, it's doubling up essentially. And the low and middle income tax offset is then to disappear in 2021, 22. And then the third stage now scheduled for 2024 uh, is um, to be achieved. The, the ultimate objective that I described before is to be achieved by reducing the 32.5% marginal rate to 30, abolishing the 37% rate, so it becomes 30, and then that runs all the way up to $200,000 instead of 180 at the moment. And that's the kind uh, of reform so they, that would see a substantial yeah, that, flattening is, of tax, right? If any, if any of this deserves to be called reform, then it's that part. It's the reductions in marginal rates and the flattening of the scale. The obvious thing to me would have been to bring that forward also, not necessarily to retrospectively to 1 July 2020, like stage two, but, you know, to 2021 or 20, even 22. <clears throat> but it hasn't been brought forward at all. I think a lot to do with the their politics, uh, because stage three uh, involves um, larger tax cuts for higher incomes than stages one and two. They And there was indeed a campaign launched by uh, another think tank. That shall remain nameless. That shall remain nameless, uh, a campaign just before the budget to to try to stop it from being bring, uh, being brought forward. So I guess they can claim victory. Hear this argument that, boy, it would not have, that money would not have been spent by the recipients, uh, would have been saved, so it's not stimulus, which entirely misses the point that uh, reducing marginal rates um, is an incentive measure for the longer term. It's not, it's not primarily about short-term stimulus, although that's part of it. Um, well, I think there's two things I'd like to just to, to get into there, and we'll just put the stimulus point to one side because I think a, a couple of our commenters, um, Anthony and Mike, have brought that up. But just before we, we sort of leave the tax cut side of this and the politics of this, um, your article in the AFR, which I, again, strongly encourage everyone to read, m makes the point quite clearly that the stage three tax cuts are now quite vulnerable to repeal or overturning them, especially given that they now sit beyond at least one and maybe two elections. A and I think the danger here of the politics seems pretty simple. Uh, we no longer have the cover of the stage two cuts that provide benefits to other marginal tax rate levels. Um, we've lost, the government's lost the benefit of literally $100 billion of additional welfare payments through COVID. If the government is so afraid of the politics of handing out income tax cuts to higher income earners in the current environment, are they ever going to have the courage to actually see these through? Well, I, I think that they are very vulnerable. The, the tax, the stage three tax cut is extremely vulnerable. Uh, the Labor Labor Party has already has has always been uh, opposed to them, although they they waved them through the Senate last year. Um, fundamentally, the Labor is opposed to them. 
And uh, I think if there were a change of government, then it would be very likely that they would be scrapped or or reshaped in some fashion or, or uh, made a part, a part of some other package. Um, if there is not a change of government before 2024, even then, I think they are vulnerable because surely by 2024, um, the government will be focusing on budget repair and these tax cuts due to be implemented will be sitting there as an obvious uh, savings option as, as, the, as they're called, uh, saving option of some many billions of dollars um, and uh, it would be very tempting even for a coalition government to, to go for that option. And as you say, by then they, that uh, stage three will have been so separated in time from the other parts, stages one and two, that the connection will have been completely forgotten about and they will be viewed by then as a standalone independent tax cut um, favouring higher income earners. So the politics of it um, in the context of budget repair at that time when the government will hopefully be cutting back on expenditure, the, the politics of it are going to be very difficult. Uh, it's worth reiterating, I suppose, just for our listeners here, although if there was anyone who would understand the rationale for these tax cuts, it would be our listeners. And, and if they'd like a little bit more information, obviously they could uh, revisit John Humphrey's 2019 paper on the merits of these tax cuts. But could you just sort of give us a, a brief rationale as to why it's important that we go through with stage three? Well, it's a reductions to marginal rates, to my way of thinking, are the gold standard of tax cuts. Not increase, not just increasing the thresholds, but actually cutting the marginal rates. They, this has a more enduring effect, a more enduring benefit. And if taxpayers um, are confident that the reductions are going to stick for the longer term, they, their behaviour will respond. It's, a, it's an, an, an improvement in the incentives that they face to uh, work more or harder to improve their skills so that they will earn more in the future, improve, that is their human capital, investment in human capital, or even um, to open a small business, which uh, is not a company, not subject to company tax rates, but a uh, you know a sole trader or partnership business uh, subject to personal tax rates. Yeah, um, so it's a productivity measure, right? I mean, it's uh, a that's... product and a productivity measure exactly helps to boost investment, not only investment business investment, but investment in human capital, and it also, I might add, uh, tilts the balance away from uh, unproductive tax avoidance behaviour. Every, every reduction in marginal rates um, tilts the balance away from 
takes the incentive away from pursuing tax avoidance strategies, which are totally unproductive um, from, from an economic, uh, economy-wide point of view. So these are, and I, you mentioned John Humphrey's paper, and I think we should also remind um, our listeners that, um, as John pointed out, the so-called cost of these tax cuts is inflated um, in the budget papers because Treasury doesn't allow for any of these behavioural responses which will actually generate more tax revenue to offset the, the, uh, the so-called cost of the tax cuts. So I think John calculated uh, from memory, uh, according to his model and the assumptions of that model, that uh, the, the true cost was $90 billion less over a number of years than the, the Treasury was saying. So I think that's important. And, and the important thing there is that the case for these tax cuts is actually not dependent on stimulus. It's not dependent on COVID. It's good for the economy more broadly. But we are in a COVID recession. Uh, the economy collapsed 7%. The government, I'm sure not at all gleefully pointed out that New Zealand's economy has uh, gone backwards by 12.2%. But nevertheless, we are in a fairly significant hole here. And the government claims that, that requires fiscal stimulus. I'm perhaps more sceptical of that claim than, than some others are. Uh, but given where we've seen this budget go, Anthony Carr, Mike Hemingway in particular, have asked, why is the budget deficit so large and why does it continue for so long? Is that proportionate to the crisis that we're facing? Stimulus uh, is, uh, it's a, a fraught topic. There are different views and uh, we in CIS, back, you mentioned the global financial crisis. At that time, we published material questioning the effectiveness of fiscal stimulus. Um, I, I personally, I think that it can play a role and uh, it is appropriate at this time in the current circumstances to have some fiscal stimulus, which is which, uh, with a short-term focus. Uh, but the problem, the problem with it has been, especially after the global financial crisis, that it was unwound uh, too slowly. Uh, and we had these, this long tail of large budget deficits um, after the, and only you know, reached budget balance uh, in 2018-19, barely. Uh, why, why can't they fall away more rapidly? You know, the government, the government says that all its, all its um, measures are temporary, but um, they do extend out to 2022-23, basically. Why doesn't the deficit fall away more rapidly? Well, it's partly because you know, these company tax measures, the way this is recorded, the, the, although the company tax measures uh, end in June 2022, there's still a revenue effect in 22-3. Uh, 
Um, and that's the way you know, company tax works. So, uh, and also there's, there's a, there is actually a permanent um, effect on the budget deficit here. There is a very telling graph in the budget papers, which I can't, I can't demonstrate, I can't show here, but um, uh, it shows that even out to 2030, 31, so 10 years, to the extent these figures can be relied upon, that qualification must be added. But even looking out 10 years, there is still a gap of almost 2% of GDP between total payments and total receipts. And this is according to the methodology of the budget papers and the assumptions. So there's a 2%, almost 2% of GDP deficit persisting way out to 2030. Um, so this is a this is a ticking time bomb, I think, um, for fiscal policy, and it's going to be it's going to dominate our politics for a long time to come. And why does it happen? It's because there is a permanent reduction in the economy's potential, and there is another very telling graph in the budget papers showing potential and forecast GDP out, well, this is to 2024, but the gap remains that they're saying that, well, the um, real GDP will get back to uh, potential by June 2024, so after four years of growth at averaging almost 4% per year, if you believe that. But uh, so back to potential by 24, but that potential is substantially below what it, would, what it was pre-pandemic. So according to these figures in June 2024, in quarterly terms, it's lower by, it looks like about uh, 30, uh, $30 billion per quarter or just over $100 billion per year lower than it would have been, the path that it was on before the pandemic. And they attribute this to uh, reduced immigration and population. But I would say that there are other factors at work. Also, so-called labour market scarring, um, investment that is not taking place that would otherwise have taken place productivity shortfall, and so on. So if you have that $100 billion a year uh, shortfall in real GDP in 2024, that's bound to have an effect on the revenue side of the budget. Unless you adjust one side of the budget, you're going to have this more or less permanent gap going forward. And it's interesting, I think, when we talk about the potential GDP and growth coming into the crisis, it's not like in 2009, where the year before the crisis, we had extremely high nominal and real GDP, so much so that some have said the RBA would have had to have engineered a significant slowdown in the economy 
prior to 2009. At this point in time, we're coming in with inflation averaging below 2%, growth is averaging sort of below 3%, wages growth in real terms is, is about half a percent or, or basically nothing, all in the lead up to this crash. Uh, do you see in the budget a plan from the government to fix any of those longer term problems? No. Um, well, to take a step back, as you say, before the pandemic, the economy was lacklustre, shall we say. It was not in a crisis by any means, but its performance was lacklustre. Um, productivity growth was very disappointing and business investment was very disappointing. The crisis is, has only exacerbated that pre-existing condition. Now, uh, we've we're constantly talking about the need for a, an economic reform program agenda, uh, wide-ranging, including things like industrial relations, um, as well as fiscal measures. Now, the budget doesn't have to spell out all of that. I mean, uh, fair enough. Uh, it's, a, it's essentially a fiscal document. It doesn't have to be a comprehensive economic program. So just because we haven't seen everything announced in the budget doesn't mean it can't still come. And you know, we, are, we are on hold for some announcement on industrial relations, supposedly very soon. So they can still do other things, deregulation uh, and so on and so forth. But the budget is uh, an, an, an important element of this because anything with a fiscal dimension to it, an expenditure or, or tax dimension to it, um, has to be in a budget eventually. And uh, that's why I find this budget disappointing from that perspective, that it's largely short term in its focus um, and has missed out, missed the opportunity to um, have have longer term, longer lasting measures, as we were talking about before. It's worth noting at this point, and I see our our regular host in the in the comments asking us to take questions. So I'm going to put one to you from from Anthony Carr. Um, is anyone doing a proper cost benefit analysis of the measures being taken? I mean. The, the government, this budget to a certain extent, simply records a number of the measures the government has already taken. Is there any sense that, that the government is actually looking to see whether these things are effective? We've seen the Treasurer come out and say that, that the JobKeeper scheme was one of the best schemes that, that a government has ever run. Um, is there any proper cost-benefit analysis being done here? Uh, not that I know of, uh, Simon, Anthony, not that I know of. Um, the ultimate cost-benefit analysis, the government would say, is uh, that their, their budget measures lift GDP growth and lower unemployment. They claim that unemployment will peak um, at a level five percentage points lower than it otherwise would have peaked, I think. Uh, so that's, uh, they would say that is the ultimate benefit. Because that, that's, that is all 
well, you can take that with a pinch of salt. I mean, the what is what is the uh, the alternative? What is the hypothetical? Uh, we don't know what would have happened otherwise. Um, we we will eventually know what will happen, but we will never know what would have happened otherwise. Governments in recessions, and this happened with the Rudd government and the global financial crisis, all, always make these claims about the exact magnitude of the effect of their fiscal stimulus on GDP and unemployment. So that, that I mean, that's one test. Other cost-benefit analysis, no. And it worries me that we're launching, we're seeing all these new microeconomic schemes launched, like the job subsidy, uh, the apprenticeship uh, program, and so on and so forth, without any uh, real analysis of their likely effectiveness. And I'm, I'm worried about the, uh, the competence and efficiency in the implementation of these schemes also. Uh, probably the only real element of cost-benefit analysis would be in some of the infrastructure spending, which has been through the, uh, the filter of Infrastructure Australia, and they do cost-benefit analysis. But, you know, even some of the projects um, that the federal government is paying for or helping to pay for uh, haven't been through that filter. Some of them have, some of them haven't. But that's as close as you get to a real cost-benefit analysis. Thanks, Robert. And just a reminder to our listeners and viewers that you are watching episode 28 of On Liberty. I'm standing in for our regular host, Salvatore, and we're talking to CIS Senior Fellow Robert Carling about this week's enormous budget. Um, there is plenty more CIS analysis on cis.org.au and, and you could always, while visiting and reading our expert analysis, feel free to join and join up as a member or, or make a donation because it's support from viewers like you that allows us to do the sort of excellent work that Robert's been doing now for several decades. I, I want to get into some of these particular measures. You were talking about the uh, wage subsidy plan. Obviously, the government has gone from a very broad wage subsidy plan under JobKeeper to a less broad job, job subsidy, wage subsidy for younger workers. I think workers aged 16 to 30, it's a subsidy of $200 a week for workers aged 30 to 35, it's $100 a week. What's the merit of these sort of schemes? Are, are they likely to be effective in in increasing employment? Will it simply shift the nature of who is being unemployed? And is that worth doing anyway? Well, I mean, look, a couple of a couple of good things can be said about this. One is that it's a, it's the private sector. At least the government is not spending this money um, within the public sector. It's a private sector. It's a subsidy to private sector employment. So it's it's up to it's leaving the job of recovery to a large extent to the private sector, the private business sector with um, assistance from government with measures such as this. Uh, the other good thing about it, you can say about it, is that it's not job, it's not job keeper. Uh, at least, uh, so far at least, the government's not talking about extending job keeper 
any longer beyond March next year. So this um, is better for JobKeeper because it's more, it's more consistent with um, a private sector that's adjusting to the new circumstances that it, find it's, it finds itself in, rather than trying to keep resources, in a, a largely in a, inactive resources locked up in activities, some of which will have no future. So I think they're the two good things that can be said about it. Sure, it will end up um, subsidising uh, new employment that would have happened anyway. Uh, that's, that's always a risk with these kinds of measures. I don't think you can't get around it. Uh, you can't, uh, you, you just can't confine it to activities that would not otherwise have happened. Um, I find the, um, the age restriction on it a bit odd. This is the government, the government is, is be, become, becoming very interventionist. Um, I guess it would have been better to have it open-ended. And I, I don't just say that as um, someone a bit above age 35. <laughs> but, um, I don't think you're going to qualify I, for the, uh, the JobMaker no, subsidy, Robert, no. I don't think so, but um, it really is a bit like their manufacturing uh, initiative, which is looks like picking winners. It does, so, although it's interesting, back when I worked at the New South Wales Department of Industry, uh, I was just flipping through some of that manufacturing stuff and I thought that looks a heck of a lot like what we were trying to do back in 2009, that was, you'd have to say, at best, marginally effective. Um, there's a couple of people in the comments, including our friend from Queensland, Jean Tunney, who did an excellent piece on productivity. For those of you who are interested in ways that we can boost the productive capacity of the economy and, and grow our way out of this problem, please check out Jean's excellent piece. But both Jean and Max have brought up in the comments about social spending. Um, obviously, we've got the job seeker payment that is scheduled to fall back to its previous level at the end of this year. We've seen a number of complaints that the government hasn't thrown additional money at spending in areas like childcare. Uh, what's your sense, firstly, of why the government hasn't committed to more spending on, on this front and whether or not it would be a good idea to do so? Well, I think that um, the main one reason is that it would be permanent and they don't want to, quite rightly, they don't want to exacerbate uh, an already difficult budget outlook by adopting permanent expenditure initiatives like higher subsidies for childcare. Um, on job seeker, that also would be permanent, um, although hopefully at a much lower level of unemployment in the future. Uh, and I don't and I don't rule out the possibility that they will still announce some uh, increase in job seeker allowance compared with what it was before the crisis, not necessarily at its current elevated level, which is to last until December. 
But uh, the fact that they didn't announce it in the budget doesn't necessarily mean that they won't announce it, say, in the mid-year budget review. And calling it mid-year is a bit of a joke this year because it's, uh, it's only two months after the actual budget. But in December, we will have a mid-year budget review. You imagine and, it's almost uh, already at the printers. Yes. <laughs> and it's possible that they will announce something on JobSeeker then. Can uh, I put you on the spot here? What, what is your sense of the appropriate level for JobSeeker? Do you think that it, it should be raised? Or, for example, would you support something that, that looked more at, at different structural options? Say, for example, if, if there was a supplement for people who were longer term unemployed, but that came with additional compliance requirements? Yeah, I'm, I don't have any detailed um, plan for it like that, but I, I think that uh, it has become a totem pole issue. I don't, I don't think it's, uh, I don't know what all the fuss is about, frankly. Um, it has been held in real terms for many years. It has not gone down in real terms. Sure, you can say other incomes in the economy, including other social security and welfare benefits, have increased in real terms in that time. So uh, the unemployment benefit should also increase in real terms. That's a, that's a respectable argument, but um, I don't think it's uh, a, a, as big a deal as it's made out to be. Uh, but I suspect they will increase it beyond what it was before the crisis, but not as high as it is now, which is, I think, 50% higher. Yeah, they've it's still cut it 50 back. 50% higher. It has yeah. come back from where it was at the height of the pandemic. It's yeah. due to fall back to its old level. Uh, I think the day right. before Christmas, which uh, which is kind of amusing, uh, as if it wasn't yeah. such a serious issue. Um, yeah. Another point from the comments, and I, I know this one will um, will get you fired up. Uh, talking about international and domestic borders. Uh, the budget assumes that all of the states will open their borders by the end of this year, with the exception of WA, who will open theirs by the end of March. There are assumptions around the availability of a vaccine by the end of next year. And I think, you know, sort of more broadly across international borders, things will start to open up again within the next two years. Uh, firstly, do you think it's realistic that that will happen? And secondly, what do you think the damage has been by shutting all those borders, particularly the, the domestic borders, um, as a result of the pandemic? Is it realistic? I think that uh, Queensland opening will be more realistic after October the 31st. And uh, if that, that government stops playing politics with the issue. Uh, Western Australia, likewise, they have an election next March. Uh, this is all, it's all about politics. Um, I, I think uh, eventually all of these governments will fall into line and realise the absurdity of their, their stances. Um, uh, internationally, it's another issue, but I would hope that um, come the new year, 
um, there will be some experimentation with ways of uh, liberalising the international border restrictions also. But all of this is a reminder that these things are very costly to uh, the economy. And, and that's another reason that um, we, we're going to have, uh, we're going to be, the economy is going to be operating below potential, even if, even if there's all the stimulus in the world, as long as these restrictions and other restrictions are in place, then we will be, we have to operate below potential because movement of people across borders is very important, not, not just for tourism and not just for, um, uh, you know, student, international students, but for business, business links as well. Uh, the conduct of business internationally does require the movement of people also, as well as uh, goods. So that's, that is definitely holding us back. Um, and I would hope that the, the sooner the better that those restrictions are lifted. I, I just want to follow up on that and talk about some of the businesses that are dependent on um, that international movement. I mean, you mentioned universities and Salvatore himself has done a lot of work on the challenges that universities are facing as a result of their dependence on international students, especially from China. We've got a significant turn down in tourism businesses in Australia, another industry that was quite a significant one for our country leading into this crisis. What, if anything, should we be doing for those businesses or should we simply accept and acknowledge the fact that, that circumstances make it impossible for the current businesses and, and when that changes, new businesses will arise to take their place? Look, I have sympathy with the notion that there are certain types of businesses that are particularly vulnerable to these restrictions, <clears throat> which are no fault of their own. Now, I know that um, one can take a harder line and say, look, this is, uh, this is a business risk that they always faced. They just have to suffer the consequences. I don't, I don't go that far, but you do, I think the, these particular types of businesses do deserve support um, because of the imposition of restrictions on them by government for a higher purpose, supposedly. I don't agree, I don't agree with that, those restrictions, but that's the fact. They're in place um, and, and, and it's not the fault of businesses of that kind. The problem is that once you get into that, you risk propping up businesses that were going to disappear anyway. So it's the, it's the obverse of the problem we talked about with the, the job subsidy, the wage subsidy, that you end up subsidising employment that was going to happen anyway. In this case, you end up propping up businesses that were going to disappear anyway. So it's it, all of this kind of activity throws 
sand into the wheels of structural adjustment, which is always happening in the economy. Uh, for, for example, um, <clears throat> the trend to uh, online shopping was underway before the pandemic came along, obviously. The pandemic has just spurred it along. So there was a, there was a structural adjustment underway even before the pandemic in the nature of retailing. How do you, how you, do you distinguish between the continuation of that structural adjustment and a temporary um, impact from the pandemic? You can't, but um, that's the nature of support measures that you end up um, subsidising the bad with the good. Uh, thanks, that Robert. It looks like we're getting a wind up here from from our excellent uh, our hosts here at the Centre for Independent Studies. Just a reminder that you've been watching on Liberty with CIS Research Director Simon Cowan stepping in for Salvatore. We've been speaking with Robert Carling, a senior fellow here. Um, he's given us some fantastic insights into the budget. I want to just wrap this one up with with sort of a, a final thought from you, which is what do you think the key thing missing from this budget is and, and what would you you'd like to see the government rectify uh, going forward? Oh, well, the key things, the key things missing, I think, um, are uh, permanent tax measures. Um, that would be good for productivity uh, growth in the longer term. Uh, and how, how can they remedy that? <laughs> well, it's a bit late now, but um, uh, there is, there are always, there's always another budget next year. And uh, we, need, we need a company tax reform to replace this temporary 100% uh, investment allowance when it comes to an end in 2022. And if I could ju just come back to um, Anthony Carr's question earlier about why the budget deficit doesn't fall away more rapidly. Anthony, it's, it's also because it, the budget deficit doesn't just depend on the government's discretionary policy measures. There's also an automatic response and particularly on the revenue side. So there's going to be a shortfall of company tax revenue and personal income tax revenue and other revenues for some years to come. Regardless of any measures the government is taking, there's going to be that shortfall um, until business and economic activity you know, gradually rebuilds to, uh, to a full recovery. So that, that's, the main reason that the budget deficit remains elevated for several years. Fantastic, Robert. Look, thank you so much for joining us and thank you to all of our guests and commenters, uh, particularly Anthony, you've been very active. Jean Tunney, thank you again for your excellent work. And I would encourage all of the people watching today, check out our other videos on YouTube, sign up for future live streams and make sure that you visit cis.org.au to check out more of the CIS's excellent content. Thank you again for joining us.